last couple weeks and this week is very textual, very sort of logical argumentation happening here. So it's going to take, uh, it's going to take some, some concentration and focus here uh, to keep up with where we're going. Um, before I start to do that, I want to get something on the audio I've been saying for the last couple of weeks. God is a gracious, a loving, a compassionate God who loves to forgive sin. He loves to forgive sin. He loves to forgive the sin of practicing homosexuality just like He loves to forgive any of our sin which we have practiced. That is to say, we will next week we're going to kind of come out of the logical argumentation from the text and talk a little more practically next week. Next week we're going to talk about God's love and compassion and grace as a part of that uh, 100% of both grace and truth. We will get to a place of talking about the church's response, about Christians' response. Uh, we'll get to a place of talking about how we live out Jesus' love in the fullness of both grace and truth. We will get to a place of talking about how we as Christians must love gay people more than gay people love gay people. If we are to be a witness, if we actually believe that righteousness was given to us by Jesus, we'll get there. But in this last week when we answer the question, how does the Bible speak about homosexuality? My task is not to be compassionate to the exclusion of truth. It is not compassion to live like sin does not exist in our own lives or anyone else's. And it is our task today to uncover what God's Word says. So we have lots of ground to cover. We're going to be in Romans 1 here, pretty much camping out there in 1, 24 to 28. We've got lots of ground to cover and we're going to go straight up Bible. So let me bring you up to speed to where we've come so far in this uh, series. You may want to write down a couple of these if you're a note taker. Uh, not a whole lot of room in the study notes today, but you may want to write some of these down because they'll help you with your life group questions as well. Here's a basic rundown of the argument we've been making so far with some gospel-centric uh, sort of redemptive stuff thrown in along the way. God's purpose in creating the world is to bring himself glory and to make himself known. That is the mission. That is the purpose of everything that we know of creation. Uh, that comes to us from Genesis 1.28. comes to us from all of Genesis and his creation. But Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, fill it, have dominion. So that is the first version of the Great Commission. It's disciple-making happening in Genesis. So we've said that God's purpose in creation is to bring himself glory and to make himself known. Now, that project of bringing himself glory may sound to you like a selfish project. But God is not us. God is perfect and holy. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere. He is eternal. Just to name a few of His attributes. And the glory that he not only deserves, but that he is going to get regardless of what we do, that glory is 100% deserved. 100%. <clears throat> In fact, if God is who the Bible says he is, 
Uh, it would be the greatest injustice of all time were he not to receive all glory and praise. God actually deserves it. <laughs> uh, that's what Scripture's telling us. That's part of what Paul's argument is going to be here. God actually deserves it. But, but we, we are so messed up that we think we deserve it. That's why we pervert and manipulate uh, everything to be about our purposes. Uh, we think that we can twist our relationships and our resources as if they can please us in the vain hope that it's going to help us, to justify us, to make us righteous, to do something about the sin we can't do anything about. So in reality, though, we are just deceiving ourselves and living in darkness in reality we deserve eternal damnation and separation from God, Romans 3.10 and following. By that point in the argument in Romans, uh, Paul has said, all Jews, all Gentiles, no exceptions, all have fallen short. In Romans 3.10 and following, he says, none is righteous, no, not one. He's quoting a couple of Psalms here, 14 and 53. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one even seeks God. Then he says, just to make sure it's understood that there's no exception to that, all. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, God carries out his mission of bringing himself glory by graciously sharing himself with us to make up for sin. We'll talk about that later on at the end. But, but God carries out his mission of bringing Himself glory by graciously sharing Himself and His mission with creatures who are made to enjoy being ambassadors in the advance of His kingdom and mission. Which means, which means the believers by faith in Christ share in God and His mission for the world. Which is a flabbergasting awesome thought. Despite the fact that we think we are the ones who deserve glory, because of faith in Christ, He allows us to share in His mission. Instead of being ultimately selfish, he is ultimately the most humble to give of himself like that. So that's, that's the project. That's what we've been talking about from the beginning, the first couple of weeks especially. Now, in nature, in the created world and created order, in nature, the way this project of be fruitful and multiply is carried out uh, biologically is by the sexual union of a biological male and a biological female. That is the way, biologically, that it happens in terms of his mission. That's how be fruitful and multiply as a mission is propagated, biologically. You can participate no less in God and in his mission if you can't have kids, if you're single, uh, if you can't procreate, but that's another sermon series. Uh, we're, we're approaching this question uh, about maleness and femaleness in particular, so we're going to answer it as such. We saw this truth about God's design of a sexual union of biological male and biological female in Genesis 1 and 2, especially in Genesis 2.24. In Genesis 2.24, which is the passage Jesus in Matthew and in Mark, in two different places, when he's confronted by the Pharisees to talk about divorce, he says, how, how can you not know that this is how God created this? And he hearkens back to Genesis 2, 24. 
So as Jesus said there in uh, Matthew 19 and Mark 10, if you want to look those up later, as He said, God created man and woman, male and female parts, so that when it comes to issues that we're talking about here, like any of these issues, gender identity or fluidity, so-called same-sex marriage, the practice of homosexuality, because of that biological creation by which the propagation of God's mission happens, male and female, because of that truth, the Bible stance, the Bible stance in a nutshell is this. We just put it on screen. God's natural intent and means, the sexual union of a biological man and a biological woman, is the standard against which all else is measured as sin when it comes to sexuality, maleness and femaleness. Gender identity. Who you are as a male or female is not a social construct. It's not something you decide today as opposed to yesterday. I'm feeling like being like this. This is not how that works. Scripture says God's natural intent for who you are is biologically who He made you to be. The sexual union of a biological man, biological woman. And that's the standard against which all else outside of that is measured as sin. So that's the assumption behind Paul's thinking. That's part of Paul's world. It's a very Jewish way of thinking about it, which became a, a Christian way of thinking about it because of Jesus, because of Paul. So Romans 1, 24-28 is probably the granddaddy of all uh, Scripture passages when it comes to this question of the Bible stance on homosexuality. And we've included it in your study notes on the back there in the outline. We've included it in the section that says uh, practicing homosexuality, number three, is contrary to God's plan, number one above, and is sin as a secondary source that implicitly condemns homosexuality. Implicitly means the word homosexuality is not in there. However, however, Romans 1 is probably the most explicitly uh, against the practice of homosexuality uh, because of its surrounding context, uh, because it names not just male practice of homosexuality, but also is the only place in Scripture where the female uh, homosexual practice is also mentioned. Um, there are reasons why that's not mentioned in lots of other places like the male homosexuality is, but we're not going to touch that today. So let's jump in. We're going to the deep end here, friends. Make, make sure you maintain focus. We're going straight up Bible, verses 24 to 8. Let's read them together. Therefore, God gave them up, and we'll talk about what therefore means. We're going to camp out there for a long time. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged unnatural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. He adds that part with women there. We'll talk about why that's significant soon. And were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Jump in at 24. First word, therefore, press pause. We're going to camp out for a little bit on therefore. 
because we have to always ask when we see the word therefore, what's it there for? So we're going to talk about some context that is wrapped up in this word uh, therefore here. We're not going to tell you why this is the case, but this is Romans in a nutshell. This is Romans in a nutshell. Thank you. Romans tells us how the gospel of Jesus Christ is the revelation of God's judging and saving righteousness. We're not going to tell you how we get to this point. Uh, It'll take too long. But that's a good way of talking about Romans in a nutshell. And we're going to particularly talk about those two aspects of righteousness. Romans tells us how the gospel of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, is the revelation of God's judging and saving righteousness. Another word for righteousness, if that's a new kind of phrase, terminology for you, would be just rightness, perfection, holiness. God being right in all senses. Now notice here that there are two aspects that we mentioned, judging and saving righteousness. Judgment here is the larger context in Romans. And this isn't just a final someday judgment. That's the first thought we often have about what judgment is. And it is that, and it will be that. Don't you worry, and we should all be at least not worried that we're in trouble if we have Jesus, but it's going to be for real. So now, though, God coming into the world, making himself known, means that by the very fact that he is perfect and holy, coming into a broken world, judgment happens as a result of his perfection. When we experience, for example, the consequences of sin, even if we have repented against that sin, there will be consequences to it. We, the effect of those consequences and the effect of our sin is covered for eternity by Jesus, but it's still a foretaste. The consequences of sin here and now is a foretaste of God's judgment to come. But nonetheless, it's judgment. Now, Romans 1, 24 to 8, which is what we're focusing on here today, are part of that larger context of judgment. And that section goes from 118 through 320. If you want to read that later, it would be helpful. 118 through 320. And that's where Paul teaches about this, this first aspect of righteousness, God's righteous judgment. Another word for that that Paul uses is his wrath. His wrath, his anger. He's doing so because... In order to know what he comes to later in Romans, which is faith by grace, the gospel being given to us by Jesus that we take by faith and we enjoy his grace and salvation, in order to talk about salvation, we have to know what we're saved from. So that's what this first section in Romans is talking about. So look at Romans 1.18, which introduces this larger section. We're still giving some color to the context behind this word, therefore, that we'll get back to in just a minute here. But look at Romans 1.18 with me. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed. Wrath means anger. And for Paul here, it means God's anger at sin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, in the person of Jesus Christ, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress, keep down, ignore the truth. The truth about who God says He is. Which in Romans 1.20 is something that can be clearly perceived. So here's the crazy part about all this wrath stuff. (laughs) God is righteous even while He is wrathful. God is fully righteous even while He is being wrathful. 
Now, this may sound like a new, weird, hard-to-understand concept for us. That's because we are not perfect, and our wrath is quite rarely (laughs) justified. In fact, part of what Paul's saying here is, we are so messed up as people, we, we have no idea what the chasm and the difference is between his perfection and his holiness and his righteous anger and wrath at our sin is and our sin. We take personally, for example, what is an offense to God. We do this all the time. When we are angry or wrathful, we are selfish and vengeful and irrational and even capricious in our anger. In fact, to take it a step further, we are so messed up that we regularly take personally what is actually an offense against God. We are so messed up that we believe incorrectly that when people sin against us, we believe we don't deserve it. We act in ways that demonstrate that we believe that we are not culpable for sin and the effects of sin. I'm not saying when others sin against us, we're just, you know, there's no real hurt. Of course there's real hurt. But we believe because we are deceived and unjustifiably self-righteous. We go through life not only thinking that we don't deserve anything that is bad, but we heap our own stupidity onto that by just brooding internally over how much we don't deserve what we get and how we're going to make somebody else pay. That's where our wrath comes from. Plotting revenge on all who harm us internally. But if we understand the Scriptures at all and who they say God is and what they say sin means, then the greatest offense is not sin against us The greatest offense is always a sin against God. Because all sin, hashtag tweet this, all sin is ultimately an attack against God's character. All sin. Sin is always and ultimately an attack against God's character. Doesn't matter the circumstance, doesn't matter uh, the recipient, doesn't matter the amount, doesn't matter the motivation. Sin is always an attack against God's character. And and here in Romans 1, don't worry, we'll get back to our main text soon. Here in Romans 1, the sin on which God's wrath is being poured out is idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is turning upside down the truth of the Creator as sovereign over creation. We think of it in narrow terms as, you know, making a wooden or metal figurine that represents some sort of pagan God that that the ancients bowed down to. And it is that, but it's only symbolically so. Here Paul is saying that idolatry is turning upside down the truth of Creator as sovereign over all creation. It's worship of self over God. And that's why God is righteously wrathful at our sin. Because it comes from a place of self-worship. And that can't happen. Only He deserves worship. So, with all that background in mind, getting back to verse 24. The therefore is there for the purpose of showing us what happens when God's created order is turned upside down. God's wrath 
comes. So you can functionally here, jumping into verse 24, read the text to say, because humans worship self over God, because humans preferred idols over God, God gave them up. This phrase shows up three times in our passage today, verses 24, 6, and 8. God gave them up. It's at the beginning. It's at the, at the end. It's also in the middle there. Some take this phrase to mean that God uh, sort of allows this, uh, allows this idolatry to take its natural, normal course. And is that, it is at least that, as if he is sort of laissez-faire, merely hands off saying, you want your freedom? Go ahead. I don't think that quite does justice to the words that Paul uses here. It is a more forceful, uh, it's, it's sort of a God initiates this more actively than passively kind of a way. God gave them up means God delivers. God delivers sinners toward more sin in a more active than passive way. Here's how one commentator describes this about this idea of uh, God gave them up. We'll put this on screen because it's a bit long. No doubt such a withdrawal of divine influence, meaning that laissez-faire sort of God gave them up, thing would produce this result of impurity, dishonorable passions, etc. But the meaning of handover demands that we give God a more active role as the initiator of the process. God does not simply let the boat go. He gives it a push downstream. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner, the judge has this power like a judge who hands over a prisoner to his punishment. His crime has earned. God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. Think about this for your own life. The point at which people give their lives to God through Jesus Christ for real happens. Happens when you've reached the bottom. When you realize finally for real my sin is an attack against God's character and nature and He doesn't deserve that. And how did you get to that place? God allows this sin. This person here says, God gives the the boat a push downstream so that, so that we will realize that that judgment is happening now for our sin and we will appropriately turn toward God. The depths of sin in which the idolater is plunged are designed to awaken the sinner to the seriousness of the situation. So, given the context of judgment here in Romans, when it says God gave them over, it carries a little more of a passive than active sense as if God pushed the boat. He is the judge who hands over the prisoner to the punishment that has been earned. And Paul is using this as a way in verses 24 and 6 and 8. God gave them up. A way to say very emphatically that the idolaters that he is describing are in rebellion against God and experiencing the consequences of that rebellion now. So, back to our text. Because humans love themselves more than God, he gave them up in the lusts. That word just means kind of over-desire, passion run amok. In the lusts, of their hearts to impurity. That word impurity is not just a a ritual cleansing or impurity that we talked about a couple weeks ago in the Old Testament. This is an actual moral impurity. 
And this word that's used here is often tied in with sexual impurity in a number of other places. It's linked with the word porneia. This impurity word is linked with the word porneia in a bunch of other places in the New Testament. So this isn't just like a, an impurity that I need to be cleansed by. You don't just come and, and, and give a sacrifice or offering like the temple and the priest says, you're good, go ahead. Not that. This is a moral consequent, consequence of sin. So he's saying... God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to this impurity because they're idolaters who loved and worshipped self more than God. And that led to, verse 24, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In other words, God allowed the desires run amok to take their course by more actively than passively delivering them toward greater ruin as the boat pusher. And that resulted in the dishonoring of their bodies, the inappropriate use of their bodies. Why? Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Same thing he's been saying before. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was forever blessed. Amen. Paul's just restating his earlier argument here in verse 25. that He's already made in a couple places. For this reason, verse 26, because they're idolaters who have suppressed the truth about God, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Notice that the idea we've just talked about with dishonorable passions is a strong parallel to what precedes it in verse 24 there. It talks about the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves in verse 24 and then says dishonorable passions. It's a very strong parallel there that we know is a parallel of similarity because of God gave them over also being there. Now, Paul gives more, more color here to what those dishonorable passions are. So keep reading. For their women, their women refers back to the idolaters. So in effect, it says here, the female idolaters exchanged natural relations. Remember we said at the beginning that God's natural intent is biological male, biological female. All else is uh, sin in comparison. So God's natural intent was the sexual union of male and female, and that's the standard against which all other is measured as sin. So when it says, for their women, the female idolaters, exchange natural relations, they exchange the God-given order of male-female sexual relations for those that are contrary to nature. They exchange natural sexual intercourse with males for sexual intercourse with other females. Now, we haven't given a lot of verbiage to uh, proponents of homosexual practice uh, in the Scripture, but let me just point out one thing that is how they interpret this here. Uh, proponents of homosexuality here say that Paul, Paul is actually going against one's natural sexual orientation. So, if someone is created as gay, then naturally they are created as that. It would be unusual, it would be unnatural, I'm sorry, unnatural for them to go ahead and go against their natural orientation sexually. And, and they're saying that that is what Paul is against here. Paul is against going against your natural sexual orientation, whatever it may be. Part of how we know that that's an unnatural understanding of the word natural, part of how we know they rejected the God-given order of male-female is because the parallel in verse 27 
says, and the men likewise, that's how we know it's a parallel, the men likewise gave up natural relations, but then he adds, with women. They likewise gave up natural relations with women. In other words, the natural way God made it to work as male-female sexual union and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. So here in Romans 1, there's no uh, room for interpretation of a so-called natural sexual orientation that we know today that the writers of the Bible didn't know then. That's what the argument says. Well, um, there's a lot more actually uh, against that idea that we'll talk about more next week. So back to the text. Verse 27 here, as a result of turning upside down the natural order, they were committing shameless acts with one another and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This word error here, don't mistake this for being a softening of sin. This word error is used in a bunch of other places to describe the sins of unbelievers. So when Paul says that this penalty for homosexual practice is received in themselves, it may be suggesting a few things. Uh, You can go ahead and look that up on your own. We're not going to suggest what it says because... I'm not totally sure yet. Um, Maybe I'll tell you what I think next week. Paul finishes up this small section with a restatement of the results of idolatry that turns into unnatural sexual relations. In verse 28, he says, "Since Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, to acknowledge who He is as Creator, God gave them up. There's that phrase again. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Friends, lest we perceive ourselves. Because listen, we've talked about for three weeks um, what is a pretty clear case of the Bible being opposed to the practice of homosexuality. And it's easy in our culture today with this being a particularly sensitive topic. Um, Some of us have those in our own families who have struggled with same-sex attraction who are uh, out of the closet. We have friends, co-workers, um, some in our own families, some perhaps here today uh, fall into those categories. Uh, Because of the sensitivity of this topic, we must always, we must always. You don't, get, you don't get a seat at the table to talk about response to this until you have done your own spiritual homework and business with the Lord. Lest we perceive ourselves as above the law or beyond reproach by our own unrighteousness. Paul goes on in Romans, he goes on in this section to demonstrate that all, Jew or Gentile, all who make sin the trajectory and the practice of their hearts and their lives stand in danger of God's eternal wrath. Which is why he says in Romans 3.10 and following, none is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. But in Romans 3.21, the first verse the first verse of the next section that heralds the righteousness of Christ 
lived for us. He says, but now, (laughs) but now, the righteousness of God, God's perfection has been made known to us in the person of Christ. It says the righteousness of God through our faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Friends, the gospel is the good news that Christ has gifted us His righteousness for our unrighteousness. May we never, never forget nor forsake this precious truth. That any one of us, any one of us, stands only because of the grace and the mercy of God to save us. I'll close with this. This is how I think about this concept of Christ's righteousness for us. I imagine, have you ever seen one of those nuclear blasts where something or someone is standing there and and the blast just just obliterates everything in its path in an instant? The gospel is the good news that because Christ's perfect, sinless life was broken for us, to atone for our sins, and He raised from the dead, He stands in front of us, and we stand behind Him as God's justified, righteous, from His holiness, wrath against sin. Covers everything in its path. And yet we stand protected behind Jesus Christ. His perfect, His sinless life. None of us, none of us deserves that and none of us earns that. So friend, don't, don't go talking about someone else until you understand well one's own salvation and being saved from the wrath of God. Let's pray, friends. Almighty God, we come to You humbled by the truth that You are immeasurably more than we could imagine. That Your beauty and Your holiness and Your perfection is something that You have given to us in the person of Christ to our account and saved us from your just anger at the sin and rebellion that stares you, the Creator, in the face and says, I don't care if you made me this way. I'm going to do my own thing. Father, in the quiet of this moment, we ask, for your Spirit's work in us to make clear to us what you would have us do in light of this wonderful truth that you've given us resurrection power, that you've 
rendered to our account an infinite goodness that is required to have relationship with you that we would otherwise never know. We love you for that, Lord. We're humbled by that. We give you praise and glory for that. And we ask that you would continue to uh, give us uh, a healthy body of believers where the fellowship of the saints, where encouragement and worship, where study in the word together, where uh, prayer for one another, where uh, our work as a community of faith together would, would equip us to take that precious truth uh, to a dying and desperate world who has no idea the danger they're in. Give us strength for that task, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.